Hi, this is Al Milgram, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 73 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there, that would be Mr. Bob Lucius. Hey, Bob. You know, a man walks down the street and he says, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've walked down the street and said that to myself. I know. Right. right? Especially yeah. with, our, with our wager going on. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, yeah. We're constantly checking ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Doing but yeah. Pitch. If you're if you're listening and you're like, what are they talking about? Uh, it sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Um, that's because the rest of my life is so hard, you know, and I need a photo opportunity. <laughs> I need, Bob, I need a shot at redemption. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. All right. So what are we doing? We're being, we're it's being silly. Um, yes, that is one of my all time favorite songs. Uh, you can call me out by Paul Simon. And why is that my opening today? Well, because we are talking with legendary comic uh, industry, longtime professional, uh, that would be Mr. Al Milgram. And Al's going to join us here in a little bit. We'll talk to him about his experience uh, working on the character Captain America, as well as, of course, um, his amazing stories about, you know, his time in the 70s and 80s and 90s and so on working with all these other legendary creators. So it's going to be a real fun conversation to talk with Al. Yeah. I know, I know you have spent a great deal of effort trying to lock down Al, right? I mean, most folks, right. I mean, they're jumping at the opportunity to sit with us for a couple hours. Right. But Al, like he had to go, he went to Florida with his wife. Yeah. He's a busy guy. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. So, but we finally nailed him down. We did. And and couldn't have come at a better time because this is going live in just a couple of days. Uh, So, yeah, and and I'm going to tell everybody right now, right? Um, This is episode 73. We already recorded uh, episodes 75, and then we recorded 74. Now we're recording 73. So, we're not going to get into what weight we are right now because it's just going to confuse matters. We'll get to that when we you hear us in these upcoming uh, episodes. Um, but I do want to talk about something exciting, Bob, that's happening on our Captain America comic book fans Facebook group. Yeah, let's hear it. Well, it is March 2nd and we got March Madness going on. <laughs> so like we did last year, we did Cap Madness. And with the Cap Madness, we did our own bracket of 32. Last year, it was 32 Captain America artists. And we every day, we had a new vote uh, between two different artists. And the people in the Facebook group spoke. And essentially, we, the bracket became 32, then became 16, then 8, then 4, and then 2. And it was down to Mike Zeck and Jack Kirby. And of course, the king won as far as favorite Captain America artists. So 
So we had said, all right, let's uh, let's look at what we can do this year. And we tossed around, maybe we'll do another bracket with the artists. Maybe we'll do writers. You said, hey, why don't we do covers? That's right. Everybody loves a cover, Rick. I mean, if you didn't have a cover, like you just have the book, right? You got to have a cover. And, and they're iconic, right? Covers can be iconic. So I think, hey, this is, uh, this is shaping up to be really interesting. Wow, Bob, that is so <laughs> philosophical. I was trying to they, be a little, a little they, sort of highfalutin they, there. Did you get that? Yeah, yeah, they, they all have to have covers, or else they just be books. It's an existential question, buddy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. great. Well, Bob, um, I'm, you know, we we're having fun with it, right? So uh, this past weekend, we went ahead and asked the the members of the Facebook group to post their favorite captain america covers and then uh we asked people to to like uh the ones that they feel should make the 32 cover bracket and here we are bob we are um in the midst of it and it'll be a lot of fun we'll be doing this over the next several weeks uh if you hear us in podcast episodes 74 and 75 not knowing what the heck we're doing for march madness because again we recorded that beforehand so yeah you know what though i think what's going to be really interesting and the thing that i loved about last year's march madness was first of all is it interesting it was like oh, who's going to win right but it was the comments right it was it was people explaining why they picked one or the other in every bracket. And I think that's going to be equally exciting this time. I hope folks dive right in and tell us what they love about this cover and why this cover they think is, uh, is, is the one they're going to vote for. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, and Bob, it's a good point. And I think it's going to be different for everybody, right? Because mm-hmm. I think some people are going to vote for, well, that was my, one of my favorite stories. And therefore I'm going to, pick that cover because they're, they associate it with the story inside. So people are going to say, well, you know what? That was my first cap comic, mm-hmm. or that's one of my favorite time periods from my youth. Me, Bob, I, I have a different perspective, right? And maybe this is the marketing guy in me. Maybe this mm-hmm. is the guy who, you know, has to, to put together some things to get people's attention. Right. So to me, I'm going to be voting for the covers that draw me in. Mm-hmm. No pun intended, right. right? I want the covers that are going to capture my attention, make me want to read the inside, or at least to open it up to check it out. Um, so maybe it's a uh, you know, and maybe maybe the story inside is not something I even care for, or um, you know, or whatever the case may be. But it's it's like, what is it about this cover that is pulls me in, that captures me? What about it is iconic? That just, you know, maybe for its time period was ahead of its time, or it was, you know, something that really stood out in that time period that maybe 30, 40, 50 years or, you know, later is a little dated. But um, yeah, those are the, those are my reasons. What are, what are yours? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I look at, I look at it. It's art, right? I mean, and uh, even, even uh, divorce from the book for me is like, is it, is it art that I can appreciate and why, why do I appreciate it? So like you, I mean, I, I'm looking at your, uh, I'm looking at your man cave right now, your hero cave. And I know you've got some, uh, you've got some art up. You're right. You've got some mm-hmm. cover art up and these are covers that uh, are important to you, appeal to you. I've got, you know, big size, uh, you know, posters, yeah. promo posters up of, of covers that I, 
to me, uh, I, I, it's just art that I want to hang on the wall. It's something I want to look at. It's something that stimulates my imagination or my interest in some way. Uh, so when I look at a cover, uh, I, I want to be wowed. I want to like, wow, that's something that really catches my eye and uh, just excites me, you know? Yeah. You know, I, you know, you know, who's a good person to ask about this, Mr. Al Milgram, he, in his career has uh, produced or somehow, whether it was penciling or inking somehow involved uh, over a thousand covers, Bob. That's amazing. Uh, I know. Right. So who better than to, to, to talk to about this than, than Al Milgram. So yeah, I, hope, I hope we can ask him. Let's bring him, let's bring him on board. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Our next guest has been a longtime comic industry pro. With his career spanning the last five decades, he's worn many hats uh, as editor, writer, penciler, anchor, cover artist, to name a few. Highlights include ranking number six all time in inking with over 14,600 pages and over 750 different issues. He's also created over a thousand different covers. He's known for co-creating the original Firestorm at DC, as well as a 10-year editor for Marvel Fanfare. There are few Marvel and DC characters from the 1970s through 90s he has not touched at some point. We are very pleased to have Al Milgram as our guest. Al, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate that, Rick. Glad to be here. You know, of took- course. Yeah. We, we've been wanting to have you on for a while. We've been covering uh, Captain America comics that your name has popped up many times. So we're happy to have you. You started your career uh, in comics in the early 70s uh, as an assistant. You know, you had some work published with Charlton and, and Warren. A few years later, you broke into Marvel. And, and can you talk a little bit about how you made it into Marvel? Uh, sure. Well, yeah, I started in 1972 and uh, I was uh, close friends with Jim Starlin. We went to the same middle school and high school and uh, he was better than I was. Uh, and and somebody introduced us. Oh, you know, we know a guy who also draws. And I said, well, this guy's way better than me. And I thought, well, you know what, instead of uh, instead of competing with this, you know, talent, I'm going to just ink his stuff. So I started inking a lot of gym stuff. I would, you know, and, and the difference between us, uh, among other things was, you know, I would draw, you know, in, my, in a sketchbook or on a page, I would do a page or a page and a half. Jim would do 20 page stories. He would, he had the ideas. He, the stuff flowed out of him like, like nobody's business. It was just really awe-inspiring. And, and, uh, 
you know, there, there were uh, things that he did back then that over the years, he, there was a sort of a, a more of a softness uh, to his stuff and a warmth that I really liked. And over the years, his drawing improved, but he lost some, you know, it, it's like anything in, in art. You, sometimes you lose something to gain something. And uh, I still have pages of his uh, that he did back in the early 70s and even late 60s that, that in some ways are among my favorite things that he ever did. Um, including some pages where he introduced uh, Thanos. He had the idea for Thanos before he ever got into the business. And uh, I've got uh, uh, some penciled pages and, and a couple that I also inked where Thanos appears at uh, Tony Stark's house in the suburbs. It's a very, it's a very modest <laughs> middle-class house, not like a mansion that, you know, this kind of multimillionaire might've had. But anyway, uh, and and so uh, it's among the first drawings he ever did of, of huh. the Thanos character. But that's not what you asked. You asked how I got into uh, Marvel. Uh, and I did, uh, well, Jim and I both, I was in college. He was in the Navy. We both mustered out about the same time, 1970. I think Jim got out, he got out in 72 or maybe late 71. But he was, he moved to New York uh, we were both from Michigan, uh, and he moved to New York several months before I did. I don't remember the exact timing, um, but he, um, you know, again, super talented. So he got some work right away, including, I think, among his first jobs, he got a romance story that he did for uh, Marvel. Uh, I think Jack Abel inked it, which was nice. Jack became a very good friend of mine, but he's also a very super slick professional inker so whatever rough edges there may have still been in Jim stuff he uh, smoothed those right out and he was doing I think um, some kind of layouts for John Romita and uh, when I graduated from uh, the University of Michigan uh, you know we were in touch and I, and I called him he says look uh, you know you're going to come out here because uh, we got this uh, you know we got this roommate who's who's moving out and, uh, you know, you could move into his, uh, his, uh, you know, his room in our, they were renting a place from a guy on Staten Island. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm planning on coming out, you know, be there, I'll be there soonish. And, uh, and I did, I, you know, I, uh, I don't remember how I did I drive out there. I don't remember flying. I must've driven and I took, you know, clothes and my drawing supplies and, you know, a handful of, uh, of uh, samples and what have you and, and and got out there somehow or other but then what did I rent a car I really I have no recollection of this but I got there <laughs> so anyway um and he was living in a place with uh let me let me get this now it was Jim it was uh um, Bill Dubay who was the uh editor at Warren at the time <clears throat> and uh, Steve Skates who was a writer for Marvel and DC and and anybody else who would uh, accept the scripts and uh, Mike Friedrich, and Mike was a writer, and Mike had been out there for a while, and he had, you know, established himself, and he decided he hated New York, and he was a native Californian, and he wanted to get back to the sunshine, and uh, so he was moving out, and uh, and so, uh, I, you know, Jim introduced me to the guys, and I said, yeah, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to, to living with you guys, and Jim went, I hadn't told him that yet, and I said, well, <laughs> what? 
I said, well, this was going to be a surprise. Why, you know, <laughs> tell him, hey, you got a buddy from back home. You got to, you know, there's an extra room now with Mike moving out. And uh, this will keep us from having to pay any, you know, higher rent. <laughs> so anyway, um, but we had come out to New York together. I think the previous year he had been maybe on leave or something. And we took our samples around together, which was kind of a amateur move. And uh, I remember Joe Orlando was looking at it and, was, you know, he's better than you are. I said, yes, I'm aware, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know, Jim actually picked up a couple little uh, one or two page uh, house of mystery, house of secrets, uh, short thingies just to, to do, you know, to, to break them in. And I was hoping they'd let me ink them, but no, they got uh, Dave Cockrum. I remember inked one of them. He was still just, on the cusp of starting to get work up there. And I think the other one was inked by Wayne Howard, who was, uh, you know, he, he was a pro working for Charlton and he had a very, his whole style was very much based on Wally Wood stuff. And he was good. He was solid. Uh, anyway, so I didn't get that. That didn't get to be my premiere. Um, but I also did a, a job for uh, Rich Buckler, who had been a friend of mine. Uh, Buckler had moved out to New York also, also from the Michigan area originally, and um, we'd met and uh, were friendly at the time. Uh, and he said, oh, I got a guy out here who uh, who's doing a job for Charlton and he's, you know, he's penciling it and uh, he needs an anchor. You know, would you be interested in inking it? And I said, you know, would I? You know, uh, and I think I think I was getting I think they paid me 10 bucks a page which was not wrong considering the Charlton rates at the time. So it was a guy named Jimmy James, very solid guy. Um, I think he went, got into animation later and stuff, but he did comics for a while. And, uh, and uh, they sent me the story and I inked it and sent it back in. And it was, I remember it was, it was hard to do because I'd only ever inked me, myself and Starlin prior to this. Uh, but it turned out okay, and and it saw print because you know Charlton wasn't real picky, you know. So, uh, uh, you know that that worked out. So anyway, that's still not what you ask. So I moved out uh, in '72 and moved in with Starlin and those guys. And uh, I remember I, you know, I was showing samples around. I went up to Marvel. I went up to DC. I went up to Warren. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, Jim Warren was a character. He, you know, he, he says, look, uh, I've learned that, you know, people give advice. Nobody listens to them unless they have to pay for the advice. So I said, oh, okay. And he says, so he had like some kind of tube and he says, here, put 50 cents in this tube. And I think it was earmarked for some charity or something, or, or maybe he put it in his pocket later. I don't know. But <laughs> So I, I paid him 50 cents and he says, mm -hmm. okay, here's what's wrong with your stuff. And he went down a long list and blah, blah, blah. And he says, so, you know, but you'll have to work on improving all this before you can work, get work up here. I said, okay, thanks. You know, it was an interesting experience. Uh, he also quoted, uh, he, <laughs> he said, and remember, less is more. I said, less is more. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> <laughs> I... He says, that's not my quote. He says, that's a, that's a quote from Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, I find, found out later it was actually uh, Wright's teacher, Mies van der Rohe, who was an <laughs> who came up with that, with that phrase. But it's not bad advice. You know, Alex Toth certainly 
certainly lived by it. So uh, that's a good source. Anyway, so I took my samples around, didn't get a lick of work. Uh, Buckler wa wanted me to work for him. Um, and I don't know how much, I know we're supposed to be talking about CAP, so I won't, I won't go into too much detail, but let's just say it didn't work out. And um, in fact, uh, over a two or three week uh, span, the idea was Rich was doing uh, layouts or breakdowns, and I was tightening them up to make them full pencils. Uh, now, he'd been in the business about, you know, five minutes, and he was already acting like a, 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 an old pro who had to hire assistants and, you know, to try to produce more stuff and so on. And uh, he drew a lot better than I did also. I had, a, I had a tendency to get involved with guys who drew better than I did. But then who doesn't? But, but anyway, uh, you know, and he, we went through all three kinds of machinations. He would get migraines. One day he, he wanted to go to work. He says, the great thing about being a freelancer is you can work from anywhere. So we, we, he was living out on Long Island and he packed up his wife and his nephew who was visiting and they made a picnic, picnic lunch and we went to the beach and we got to the beach and we unpacked everything except we realized we'd forgotten the picnic lunch. <laughs> so then we had to drive back to his house to get the lunch and then we went back to the beach and we ate the lunch. And then, you know, we both had lap boards with us and he, he put his pencil on the paper and he says, I'm getting a migraine. I can't work. We have to go back. So we went back to the house. So over the course of like, like I said, two or three work weeks, he had me actually move in with him for a while. Um, we did, I think, a total of two, it wasn't even 12 pages, but, you know, I was getting five bucks a page for finishing up his pencils. Uh, and I, and I, you know, and in the meantime, I had gone to the Phil Suling Comic Convention, which was the big, big comic convention at the time in New York City. And I, like I said, I, I visited DC and Marvel and at DC, um, they introduced me to Murphy Anderson, who was a wonderful, uh, you know, old time artist. Yeah, I mean, he was in, probably in his forties at the time, but seemed like an older guy to me. Um, and, you know, terrific penciler, terrific inker, very solid. And he was looking for a background guy. And so they offered me a job to come in and work every day because he used to come in from Jersey and sit up at DC and ink pages over Kurt Swan, over uh, Irv Novick, uh, over, you know, any, you know, wasn't doing any Carmine at the time, but, you know, he was a, he's a real solid uh, pro and, and he even, uh, he had, you know, on and off been doing penciling uh, for, you know, for decades. And, and at the time, I think he got the Korak strip, you know, Son of Tarzan uh, for the Edgar Rice Burroughs books that, that they were doing at the time. So, um, and, you know, he, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as just an inker and advised me the same, uh, you know, but he was doing both and, and uh, he offered me a job. So I said, well, um, can I get back to you? And he says, sure, take your time, you know, whenever. And once I realized it's, it wasn't going to work out with Buckler, um, I called him up and I said, gee, I, you know, if you don't mind, I think I'd, I'd like to come work for you. And he said, that'd be great. And, you know, come in whenever it's convenient and we'll sit you down and you'll work sitting right next to me. I said, good. Uh, and in the meantime, Buckler was in hot water because <clears throat> he wasn't paying his phone bill. 
And uh, Starlin and I went into Marvel one day. Jim was dropping something off. And Jim was a super pro. I mean, he never missed a deadline, um, as well as being really good. And Roy Thomas came running out because he knew the two Detroit boys were were in the were in the you know in the waiting room. And he said, "You guys, you're Buckler's friend. We can't reach him. His phone's disconnected. He owes us uh, this uh, Man Thing job." He, at the time, Rich was doing Kazar and Man Thing both, and uh, and. And, you know, if he doesn't show up with that entire job by Monday, he's fired and he'll never work for us again. And, and so we went, is this our problem? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, but we, you know, we thought, well, maybe we should try and do something for him. So we, we hopped on Jim's motorcycle and we, and again, we're on Staten Island. Uh, you know, Buckler was on Long Island. It's not an easy get to go from one to the other. I don't remember how we, well, we went from, I think we went from the city out to, out to Buckler's place on Long Island. And we show up at his door and he goes, what are you guys doing here? And he said, uh, he said, well, Roy says you're fired if you don't get this job. In. And by the way, he's, he had also told us that he was very upset because they specifically wanted this hot young talent, Rich Buckler, to do the man thing stuff to compete with, you know, Bernie Wrightson on Swamp Thing, uh, which both, you know, came out about the same time. And he said, uh, you know, uh, they're very aware that, that whoever, you know, at, and he, at the time, uh, Buckler was getting, again, Bill Dubay, who was a writer and an editor and a penciler, to tighten up his pencils on, on Man Thing. And they said, you know, uh, nothing against Bill, but the stuff doesn't look like your stuff at all when he gets done tightening it up. And, and Roy's real upset about that. And he goes, Oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to? And so Starlin said, don't worry. We'll come in. We'll sit down, you know, give us the, the man thing uh, is plot. Uh, you can, you can lay out pages. Al will tighten them out. I'll take, I'll take some pages and I'll draw them. And it was a, you know, half a book at the time, I think. So he said, uh, you know, so it was a, you know, 12, maybe 12 page story. And over the course of the weekend, we penciled the whole job. And as we're leaving, uh, Buckler said, well, you guys, you really saved my life here. And thanks. And how, how can I repay you? And Starlin magnanimously said, that's okay. Sometime uh, you can help me out on a, on a job when I'm behind. Never happened in his whole life. Uh, and I said, and as far as I'm concerned, Rich, uh, just pay me the five bucks a page that was our arrangement, you know, when, when I was doing the, the Kazar stuff. And, uh, and I said, but listen, uh, I got an offer to go work for Murphy Anderson at DC. And I think I'm going to take it. And he looked at me like incredulous and said, well, why, why would you take that? I said, well, you know, he's offering me steady work. And, you know, in the last three weeks I've done, I've all I've earned from you is $60. And, uh, I said, I, I, I don't think I can live in New York on $60 a month. You know, it's just, it's not going to work out. And he said, but I can teach you a lot more than he can. And I went, you know, here's, here's this established pro Murphy Anderson, who's, you know, great, you know, used to do the Buck Rogers comic strip and, and, you know, everything. And, and here's, like I say, a guy who's um, a contemporary of mine and who's been in the business for five or 10 minutes. I said, maybe, but I still think I need the steady work 
And so, you know, sorry about that. And then in the meantime, it took me about three or four years to get paid. I, I, I hounded him every time I saw him. Hey, where's that 60 bucks you owe me with? <laughs> <laughs> he also then had the, he had the nerve to tell another uh, guy he was working with that I once charged him for doing him a favor. Mm. I said, and I told the guy the story. I said, I wasn't doing him a favor. He, I was his employee and he took three years to pay me my lousy 60 bucks. So what do you think? He says, oh no, you, that wasn't a favor. You had an arrangement. I said, yeah. Right. Okay, so now I bored you with that one. But right. uh, I worked for Murphy for almost exactly a year, like from July to July, 72 to 73. And towards the end of that stretch, uh, aside from inking his backgrounds and learning at you know the foot of a master, um, just, just about that time, uh, Dave Cockrum, was he had gotten the uh, Superboy strip. And I don't know if it was in Superboy or Adventure, but one or the other. And he said, uh, Al, I'm, I'm having trouble. And he was penciling and inking it himself. He said, I'm having trouble uh, getting all the pages done. Uh, could you help me out? And I said, sure. What do you need? He says, I need four pages inked. Um, and don't, don't touch the faces. I'll do the faces, but just ink everything else. So I did. And while that was happening, uh, Starlin got a job doing a backup story for a book called sword sword of sorcery i believe it was yeah yes mm -hmm. and that one featured fafford and the gray mouser uh which you know was a was a, a series of books by oh i can't remember the author's name now oh well that's old age for you anyway um you know he, he uh chaken had been doing the lead feature on that and uh and then i think there was another guy from, now I'm forgetting his name, from Canada who was working on it with them. And anyway, a lot of guys pitched in on that book. And they gave Jim Starlin the backup story, which was a Grey Mouser story. Jim's pencils were, you know, tight as a drum. I mean, you couldn't ask for tighter pencils. And he, he said, look, uh, I asked for you to ink this job. I said, thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. So, and again, this is for DC. But Jim was primarily working for Marvel already at the time. And so I, um, I inked the job and I did a good job, you know, very tight. And, uh, you know, and Jim said, oh, this looks great. And, you know, I showed it around. And I think that was how uh, Cockrum knew that I was competent enough to help him on his stuff. And then at the same period, Walt Simonson, uh, who, I, who I knew a little bit because, you know, everybody used to hang out at the D.C. Uh, coffee room. And, uh, you know, they had a break room there. And um, he also was having deadline problems. And in his case, he was doing the lead story for the same issue of Sword of Sorcery that Starlin had done that backup story for. So he was doing the Fafford Gray Mouser story. And uh, he said, look, I'm, I'm up against it. And, uh, you know, I see what you did over Starlin. It looks great, you know. And how about if you come out to my apartment and you move in with me for the week? And I, I did you know, real loose layouts for, for the lead story, but I can tighten them up and hand them to you and you can ink them. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we can both be working on the job at the same time. And I said, sure. And um, it, the timing was good because Murphy uh, had decided to leave comics and, and uh, work on PS magazine, which was this uh, preventive service maintenance magazine published by the army. And he had worked on it previously for Will Eisner. 
Um, they use it as an educational tool for soldiers and, you know, with illustrations in case they weren't, you know, good readers. And, um, and so he, you know, he was very familiar with the magazine and he put in a, a bid uh, and he won the contract. And he asked me if I wanted to come work on the magazine with him. And I said, I, it just doesn't sound like something I'd like to do, Murph. I, I want to do comic books. And he goes, he says, look, I got to warn you, this industry is not long for this world. You know, it, it, <laughs> it's, it may not be here in five years. I said, well, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. So um, anyway, so he says, okay, well, I wish you luck. And you made, um, you made a good choice there, Al. Well, for me, certainly. And especially since the next time around when he, when he, uh, he was doing a wonderful job for, on PS magazines, Frank Giramonte, I think was working for him at the time uh, and probably others as well. But uh, you know, when it came up for renewal, he put in another bid and the army went with somebody who underbid him and then they couldn't produce the book. They, you know, from the get go, they were like behind the eight ball and sent, and then the army called Murphy up and said, look, we made a mistake. Uh, this guy screwed us over and he can't make a deadline and he can't get the book out. And so they said, we, you know, would you, would you come back and do PS for us? And he said, no, he, he said, nope. I, I made a fair offer. You turned it down. I'm back doing comic books, you know, basically screw you, <laughs> screw you, U.S. Army. So, um, <laughs> So anyway, and, uh, and, you know, Murph was a real Southern gentleman type of guy and, and a sweet guy and honorable. And he felt like, you know, by turning down his uh, bid after he had sh- proved to them that he could do the job, uh, that, that, that it was an insult to him and he didn't want to work for him anymore. So anyway, so uh, in the meantime, Starlin uh, took me up to Marvel with him. And we had Xeroxes of the, uh, of the uh, Gray Mouser story that we'd done together. And he walked into John Verporten's office. John was the production manager at the time for many years at Marvel. Big, heavy guy, always smoking a pipe. And uh, we walk into his office and Jim says, John, and he, John was always reading a, a stack of pages, proofreading or whatever. And he looks up, you know, over his half glass. He's looking at us. He goes, yeah. Yeah, Jim, what's up? He says, uh, this is Al Milgram. He's going to be inking Captain Marvel from now on. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and John just looked at me and he went, he went you know, he shrugged, <laughs> you know, and that was, that's how I started in at Marvel uh, through the, uh, through the offices of Jim Starlin. Uh, and, and also things were so hectic and chaotic, you know, you, you would have thought I would have had to go through some kind of chain of command, talk to, talk to Stan, talk to Roy Thomas, uh, you know, let him see, you know, samples or whatever. No, he just, he just walked in and said, John, my buddy Al here is going to be hanging me from now on. Um, Yeah, I did, you know, so I did, I mean, just based on his own, you know, I, I don't remember how he worked out my page rate or anything like that, but uh, you know, started inking him on uh, Captain Marvel. That's, that's a fun story. Uh, You know, thanks for taking us. I I just wanted, you mentioned so many names there, right? So you obviously talked about Jim Starlin, but you also mentioned Howard Chinkin. You mentioned inking Walt Simonson. You talked about Bernie Wrightson on being on Swamp Thing. At at one point in the 1970s, you you lived in the same apartment building as, as, as these guys, right? I mean, and these, these are all creators that went on to have legendary careers. Yeah. Uh, 
what what kind of what kind of stories do you have uh, of of that of being with with Walt and and Howard and Bernie? Uh, well, what happened was I was after I the the group on Staten Island that I was with those guys that I mentioned earlier uh, we all went our separate ways uh, for one reason or, or another I don't remember what precipitated it um, and. I was working at the DC offices, as I said, and uh, I got friendly with uh, Elliot Magan, who was writing Superman at the time. And um, I get he, I think he had an apartment in Queens and it was a two bedroom and he didn't want to pay the whole rent himself. And he asked if I'd be interested in moving in and taking the other uh, bedroom. And I said, sure. Um, and I did. And this apartment, uh, in Queens. Uh, you know, we lived there together for a period of time. I don't recall how long. Uh, but at some point, uh, he moved out to move in with his girlfriend. And I thought that was understandable. And, uh, and so there I was supporting the apartment by myself, which I actually could have done. I was making enough money already at the time that that, that was not an issue. Uh, but after the experience I had with Walter, you know, moving into his apartment for a week and producing that job together. And he was living in Brooklyn at the time, I should say. Uh, I said, Hey, uh, Walt, we, you know, we liked each other quite a bit. And I said, any interested in moving in? I got, you know, I got an open uh, bedroom here in this uh, apartment. And if you're interested, you, you know, you can move in, we could split the rent. He said, I didn't really realistically think he was gonna, but he said, yeah, that sounds kind of good. I'd like that. And so he moved in with me when, you know, whenever his lease was up, I guess. And um, in the meantime, living down the block from Walter in Brooklyn was both Howard Chaikin and Alan Kupperberg. And Kupperberg was sort of like a moray eel on the back of a, of a shark. You know, he, is that the ones, are those the ones that attach themselves to, no, not moray eels. Lampreys, oh, uh, lampreys, lampreys. Uh, yes. Anyway, yes. but he he really liked you know Chaikin, and they used to he used to follow him around wherever Chaikin moved. Kupperberg would follow, and sure enough, uh, sometime after Walt moved in with me, Chaikin found a vacancy in the same apartment building, and he moved in also. And then at some point, Alan did too. Um, you know, so all these guys had uh, their own apartments there, and uh, you know, so we're all hanging out and working together. And I don't remember the the exact sequence of events, but at some point, Wrightson moved in also to another apartment. I don't maybe Kupperberg, we you know took his over when he left. I don't remember the sequence, unfortunately. My my memory's not that good. But at various points in time, all of those guys you know were living in that building in Queens, and um, and and at some other point, Roger Stern moved in there also. Wow. I think he was, you know, they were, there were some musical chairs going on there where somebody would move out of an apartment. And when they found out there was a vacancy, somebody else would move into the apartment. So, uh, in fact, one of the, one of the best things that happened to me <laughs> there. Oh, and, and after a while, um, Simonson uh, moved, moved out to move in with his girlfriend. We lived there a couple of years first, but, you know, he, he was living with uh, Louise Jones who is now, you know, Louise or Wheezy Simonson. And she had previously been married to Jeff Jones, the, uh, the painter and illustrator. Uh, so, you know, 
there was all kinds of inner, you know, interactions and, and people living there and, and moving out. I, I thought I was a great roommate because anybody living with me would ultimately get a, a girlfriend and move out and move in with a girlfriend. So I thought, <laughs> you know, that's a good, that's a good catalyst. Sure. There was a movie about that. Some guy, you know, he would date a girl and then the next, the next the guy she dated, she would marry. So he, I was good luck. <laughs> so anyway, that's what was going on there. And, uh, but one time uh, Walt and I were hanging out and Bernie called up from down. He was a couple floors below us. And he says, hey, you guys, I'm cleaning out my files. You want to come up here and see if there's anything you want? And so we said, we'll be right down. And so we went down and he had a stack of artwork that he was throwing out. Ah, and, Yeah. Ah. And so, uh, so we, you know, he's, so it, it was like, you know, picking up for a baseball game, you know, I'll take him. Okay. Then I'll take him. So <laughs> Walt took, Walt took a, a page and these pages were a variety of things. There were several beautiful finished pieces fully inked and some that were half inked and some that were only in pencil form i have one sheet that all it is is a bunch of little drawings of eyeballs noses lips no never not a complete face in the bunch but just you know features mm -hmm. you know different angles different sizes different shapes different characteristics i just love that you know I was like, how does that mind work uh, but, you know, Bernie was a super talent. I mean, possibly the most talented guy of that era, uh, just a natural talent. And he kept getting better and better and and the sweetest guy you'd ever want to know. So, you know, Walt takes a page. I take a page. Walt takes a page. I take a page. And then we got to a point and Walt said, you know, that's enough. I got all all I really want or could, you know, can use in any way. And I said, Bernie, if you're throwing this stuff out, I'll take everything else. And so I did. I had a nice, I had a nice little stack of various, variously finished Bernie Wrightson artwork, <laughs> which nice. I still have to this day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Gold so that was nice. A treasure. Oh. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Al, this is a, uh, after all, this is a, a podcast that is focused on Captain America. So we do yeah. want to turn to your work with the character. In our last episode, we reviewed Captain America number 260, uh, a 1981 story you wrote and helped ink. Well, it was uh, it was sort of a it was sort of the cover. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that. The cover was magnificent. Right? <laughs> yeah. It was sort of a sequel uh, to the Stanley Don Heck, uh, Dick Ayers, 1965 story in Tales of Suspense 62. Had some okay. of the same characters. Now, wait a but, minute. I... But hold on. Hold on. Wait, we'll let okay, you get to that. But, but what, what inspired you? Uh, to bring some of those characters back. Well, are you sure about the Don Heck? Because I remember it being a Kirby story. Hmm. Somebody got a somebody. Can, I, somebody I will look that up on. Uh, yes, uh, I will confirm Comics that. As we, uh... There's a free free plug for Grand Comics Database. <laughs> yeah, that's a I good site. I distinctly remember that Thumper character, the you know the the uh, convict with these enormous hands who was supposed to be a, you know, real badass. And I remember he and Cap like, you know, punching their fists together and Cap getting the better of them and stuff like that in the original story. Right. And um, yeah, I remember it being Kirby and I can't remember if it was Chick Stone or maybe Frank Giacoya, but I, I'm 99% I'm certain it was Kirby. But you're right. You're right, Al. It was uh, the it was the Iron Man story that was penciled by. Uh, oh, by okay. Don that, 
Not, See? Not, that there's, not that there's anything wrong with Don Heck. I love Don Heck and I love his work. Um, in fact, I just did a piece for a guy where he wanted me to uh, mimic, well, do an exact replica of a Don Heck Iron Man drawing in the end papers of a of Marvel Masterworks uh, mm-hmm. Iron Man compilation. So that was interesting. But Don was a, a sweet guy and I loved him and we used to chat a lot and uh, he was doing work for me at DC and stuff like that. So uh yeah i respect don a lot um so yeah i thought it was a kirby job because yeah. it just stuck in my mind now i don't remember why i was not much of a writer i didn't do a lot of writing in my career i've done a handful of jobs um i don't know if they were like desperate for a fill-in issue <laughs> i don't know who did the issue before mine or who did the issue after it i have no recollection of any of that but i you know i can't I don't know if I volunteered for it or if they said, hey, Al, can you write a quick fill-in issue? I mean, I wouldn't have been the guy they'd have gone to. I wouldn't have thought. But at that period, Marvel was scrambling to, um, you know, this was like Shooter was the editor-in-chief by that time, yes? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm, you're absolutely right. Thanks for bringing that up because we're, we're taking a look. And I do believe this is the first published written story for you. Could Other be. than back, uh, maybe Erie by Warren. Yeah. Um, now you, you're right. It was a fill-in. Uh, you know, there was uh, some David Michelini issues before that. Then uh-huh. after you, J.M. DeMatteis kicked on. So here's yeah. this. J- it's J.M. DeMatteis. Well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> did, he, did he say it's DeMatteis? He says DeMatteis? Uh, when we had him on the show, he said oh, it's okay. uh, DeMatteis. Okay, but don't worry, you're in good company because when no, we no. had Jim Shooter on the show, he he corrected us as well. Yeah. Uh, so well, that, made... that's what I, I think he told me one time because I saw him at a con last year, and he said it was always, you know, Demati Demadius was that right? Sure. Demateus, which is well, it? now he says Demateus. Demateus, <clears throat> he says it was always Demateus. But people kept calling me Demantis, and I just didn't bother to correct him. So ah. yeah, he did. He did tell me that. You're right. You're right. Oh, okay. I'm always correcting people about you know the Buscema brothers too, because they all say Buschema, Buschema, but it's not a hard C in that word in that name. So yeah, Buscema. Yeah. 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 So let's let's talk about issue two sixty. So it's titled yeah. Prison Reform. Yep. Um, and you referenced some thoughts on that subject with some of your characters. So right early in the story. There's a time where Cap is in his cell with with the Thumper, the one you mentioned before from Tales right. of Suspense, and a young man. And after hearing his story and seeing how Thumper's trying to influence this young man, Cap right. thinks to himself, and I'll quote, this is a typical case of the prison system taking a young offender and turning him into a hardened criminal. Right. It exposes him to desperate, hopeless men who teach him the tricks of their dishonest trades. It's a system that must be changed. And that's something that you wrote in Cap's voice. And this topic gets approached again a couple more times in the issue. Yeah. And it seems like that was the main message behind your story. So was this something that was really at the time pressing on you? Or was this more in response to the Criminal Justice Reform Act that was being discussed in Congress at the time? Well, I'd like to say uh, that both of those things were true, but neither of them are. <laughs> all right now we get behind Thanks, the story Bob. love it uh yeah. yeah well it's true i listen 
no one ever thought prisons uh, were a good solution <laughs> to to the you know to the situation of uh, crime and crime spreading you know and being you know it's something i i'm sure i'd heard before i don't think i was aware that this uh, this act was being considered you know this uh, prison reform act um it was just something that you know as a rule you know it was general knowledge you know hey you send a guy to prison you know uh, it does. It doesn't teach him a trade necessarily. It doesn't reform him necessarily. And what it is probably best at doing is throwing him in with other criminals who can tell him how to hone his craft. So it was just a general knowledge kind of uh, idea. And and you know, it's funny because as a, as a rule, my you know what I liked about Marvel was just you know let's have action, let's have a supervillain, let's you know. Let's do all that stuff that Lee and Kirby did together that I love so much. Uh, and yet, you know, here was a social issue kind of a thing that I picked up and, and went with. And, and again, the original story that, you know, that, uh, that Stan and Jack had done, uh, the, main, the main thrust of it was they installed this magnetic lock on the, on the main prison door, which could only be opened by the, the sound of, of a certain set of syllables, which were quote, Captain America. And, and uh, I think, you know, at some point in, in my story, I think I, I had somebody saying, hey, how'd you, who sent you up this time, Louie? And he said, ah, I was that, what can you believe it was one of those costume long underwear guys, Captain America, and the door sprung open. So, you know, somebody said, oh yeah, maybe that was not well thought out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so then they changed it back to the old fashioned kind of, you know, locked prison, uh, prison uh, door. And, um, you know, and then I changed it to, you know, Cap getting in the cell with, you know, his, his greatest foe in the particular prison, um, who was no match for, for Cap, of course, and this relatively green kid uh, who got caught up with a bad crowd and, and, and yet somehow got, you know, sent up for hard time. And I don't know, uh, I don't remember if I wrote him as a, you know, multiple offender or what, but, you know, he clearly was out of his depth there. And, and frankly, what we know about prisons now, you know, here's this young blonde guy, <laughs> Uh, I suspect he would have been somebody's girlfriend in about 10 minutes. Maybe Thumper was keeping him, <laughs> keeping him from that kind of, uh, uh, you know, sordid, uh, uh, you know, degradation. But, but anyway, so, uh, you know, the, the premise of the story was that, um, you know, Cap was, you know, the, the, the warden was an old buddy from World War II. Um, you know, Cap obviously had weathered the years better because he'd been frozen in ice, but, uh, he asked Cap to come in and test their security to see whether they were, um, you know, they were doing, if, if it was secure enough, you know, just to keep all the, all the bad guys in where they were supposed to be. And so, you know, Cap immediately goes to work trying to figure out a way to, to, to escape the jail. And, and there's a bunch of uh, reporters present. And if you look at it, uh, there are characters in there who are clearly Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen. I don't very know if you nice. noticed it. Huh? No, it's very nice. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that wasn't my idea. I don't think I am. I, it might've been in the plot. I don't know. Kupperberg. A lot of us would do that actually. If we drew, uh, you know, if we drew like the daily bugle, 
you know, it'd be Clark Kent standing around in the background, uh, <laughs> you know, which, which meant a guy with a fedora and glasses, you know, and, yeah. and wide shoulders, you know, or Lois Lane would be there, Jimmy Olsen would be there. In this case, Jimmy's, they colored his hair brown so they couldn't get sued, probably. Um, I doubt anybody would have really freaked out over it. But uh, so I, I saw that after all these years, I hadn't read the story in a long time. And I said, oh, wow, there, there's Coverberg, there's there, you know, throwing in Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen. There you go. So that was that was fun. Um, so, you know, uh, Cap is trying to figure out a way to save the kid and the kid, you know, helps him in a situation where, you know, the uh, the, the bad guys are laying for him and they're going to they're going to jump cap he says cap don't go in there you know you they'll beat you up you know of course cap is up to any challenge in there uh you'd think if enough guys grabbed him mm, maybe they could they could beat him up but uh, you know super soldier he's hard to beat so anyway and finally uh uh you know there's that uh, i can't remember the name of the deacon is it the little uh yeah. smart mm-hmm. criminal he's in there and he says uh <clears throat> look Stop trying to, you know, bump off Captain America. He says, why? I hate that guy. He says, yeah, yeah, but his job, you know, I, he's, he was a trustee, uh, the deacon, he, and he's smart. And he says, you know, if he's going to break out, we can, we can, you know, follow on his coattails and break out at the same time. And, you know, if enough of us make the break, they won't be able to capture all of us. So some of us will get away. And so he, he explains this to Thumper, you know, who basically thinks with his fists. And he says, hey, Dan, you know, that's a good idea. We should, that's, that's, that's better than just beating him up. I can beat him up later, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, although obviously not, you know, because he lost every encounter with him. But uh, so anyway, so sure enough, they're, they decide to keep an eye on Cap. And in the meantime, Cap somehow surreptitiously uh, <laughs> made a small version of his own shield in workshop there at the prison. So at least Captain America is getting a good trade out of it. If no, if, yeah. none, of the, if none of the criminals are, at least <laughs> you know, none of the convicts can do anything, but Cap's making a shield. He says, slips it under his, you know, under his uh, tunic shirt, you know, whatever. And, uh, and sure enough. And then he takes, he's got a little piece of uh, metal that he, he squirrels away and he takes it. I don't know. I mean, these guys must be walking around with a million shivs, you know, waiting to shank guys because they're all there. They're, he's stealing, you know, pounds of metal out of metal shop and nobody. <laughs> right. Maybe I didn't think that one through. But uh, so he uh, as the uh, as they close the cell doors for the night, he slips a piece of metal in to keep the latch from clicking in there. Uh, you'd also have thought that maybe there would be some system that would say, you know, oh, this door is still open, but apparently not. It was an, I guess it was an older prison. Uh, so, you know, sure enough, he, you know, when everybody's supposedly asleep, he pries the door open, he starts going down the corridor, and uh, the deacon, you know, lets everybody out of their cells, and, and he's got keys because he's a trustee. <clears throat> so Cap's making a break, and then half the prison is also following after him, you know, at a safe distance, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, you know, Cap gets out, side and he gets into the courtyard and he throws his makeshift shield perfectly even though he, you know he claims it's not balanced as well as his shield of course and he uh the shield cuts the uh fl- the, the the rope on the flagpole so that it's still attached at the top but the rest of it flops down into the courtyard 
and Cap grabs the rope and then somehow manages to get enough of a running start to get enough momentum to swing up and over the, you know, the wall, uh, thus making the, making a successful prison break. And all these prisoners who have made a break for it are going, what the hell? We can't do that. <laughs> you know, right. This guy is like the, you know, epitome of the supreme physical perfection of a, of a more or less normal human you know, or, or super soldier. So, you know, we pulled this whole thing for nothing. It's not going to do us any good, except we can mill around in the courtyard so people shoot us. So, you know, and the guards come running out and they say, get back in your cells. And they do. And, and so, and, and then the reporters are all going, well, look, you know, Captain America broke out. So, you know, your prison, you were claiming it was so secure and it's not. And, you know, there's a, there's a reporter there named Hildy, which I assume I stole from, uh, his his gal Friday, mm, you know okay. the movie. It's, yeah. it's about it's about Cary Grant and who was the who was the girl? Was it Irene Dunn? I don't remember. Oh well, it's an old movie. It's been remade about four times, but that's probably the most famous incarnation of it. And Hildy was, I believe, the name. They had been married, and now they were. He was her editor, and she was a reporter, and. In the movie, I think she was going to see uh, some guy, you know, uh, who, was, who was sentenced to death's row uh, and going to be executed. Anyway, so I'm pretty sure that's why I used that name, Hildy. That was a reference to an old, uh, an old time uh, movie from the 30s or 40s. So anyway, so there were a lot of famous reporters in that uh, in that prison, and uh, and yeah, you know, and and she said, hey, you know, she says a prisoner didn't escape, Captain America escaped. And, you know, there's nobody else like him. Nobody else could possibly have pulled that off. And so they, you know, they say, yeah, she's right. You know, which is probably not the story most <laughs> reporters would take from that. They'd say, no, no, you know what? It's going to sell papers, you know, uh, ultra secure prison proved to be not so secure, you know. Sure. Yeah. Jailbreak at the, at the, you know, at the safe, safe prison, whatever. So, uh, but because she says that, they all go, yeah, yeah, she's right. You know, we, we, we no story here, everybody. Let's go. <laughs> home. So, so that we, was, uh, thank you, Bob. You're a good audience. And, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. I like, I like to get the laugh now and then. So, uh, yeah. So that was, you know, so it, I, I thought it had some decent action. It had the prison reform element. <clears throat> it was a nice, uh, you know, uh, shout out to that that earlier lee and kirby story and i thought as an you know as a fill-in issue i thought it was very uh it was it was very competent i i, I won't say it was great <clears throat> but i thought it was good it was fine i never thought my writing I, listen i'm a very humble guy and many would say deservedly so um <laughs> you know i uh, uh you know i think the industry is so full of talented people and i just like i'm i just think it's a it's a happy miracle that I worked in it as long as I did uh, and, you know, and enjoyed it and had fun and stuff like that. It was great. And speaking of the cover, cause we were going to get to that, I think eventually um, what happened was Kupperberg who did the interior and did a perfectly fine job uh, also drew a cover for the, and I described what I wanted. I said, Captain America behind bars. Yeah. Okay. And he did it <clears throat> and it was solid, but I had an idea in mind for it. And what he had done would not have translated. 
uh, even if I had inked it and, and done the, the, the approach with the color hold that I did. And what I did was um, I had, I had uh, had conversations with Jim Steranko, who had a background in printing. And um, the thing about Jim was he was very smart. Uh, and he, he said, you know, there's ways you can use, you can do color holds, you can do red lines, you can do this and that and the other thing, you know, and he used to use graphic, uh, you know, uh, pop art type stuff in his work and so on. And he knew, you know, he sort of explained to me how some of this stuff could be done. And I said, you know, that sounds interesting. I'm going to experiment. And so I went home, I, I went to shooter. I said, Jim, this cover is not what I had in mind. Can I, can I take a crack at it? And he said, sure, knock yourself out. I said, okay. So I went, <clears throat> I went uh, to home and I sat down and I figured out a way to do it. So it's cap holding the bars and the, you know, and there's areas where uh, the color on his costume stops, but there's no holding line. I have some blacks, minimal blacks, uh, where he's casting a shadow from his, from his face or his, uh, his hands on the bars are casting a shadow or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the rest of it, then I put it at an angle, which made logically no sense, but a, a prison, you know, a barred prison window, you know, with uh, parallel bars, which in the real world would have been on the same plane as on the same direction as the bars, because the bars would be vertical and the window behind them, the bars should have been vertical. But by tilting it, I made it more interesting. And it allowed the blue, I, I, I made his costume, which is primarily blue, uh, bleed into the background and it was the same sh shade of blue. So I didn't do anything to make a distinction to get the depth on it. But graphically, it was a very interesting approach. And I was inspired by uh, Steve Ditko, who had done a cover early in his Spider-Man run. I think it was the mm, first cover with the Molten Man Oh, sure. Yeah. It was a black. Yeah. yeah. And Spider-Man was in shadows and there was a cast black shadow. And you, you know, I think maybe his legs were still out of the shadows, but the, his upper torso was completely defined by the red parts of the costume, like the, where the arms were, he, you know, the arms were solid black and they bled into the background black, mm -hmm. but you could see his gloves and, you know, and, and the, you know, the, uh, the strip up his the side of his arm and right. the chest you know the you know the v-shaped chest thing and the belt and those things were colored you know solid red with the webbing on them so you had this great and i just remember as a kid just seeing that image and going what how did he do this how why this works this is so great and then i found out at some point and i don't know if this was before or after uh i did the cap cover but there was an old time illustrator from the you know early part of the 20th century, and his name was Cole Coles Phillips or Cole Phillips, Cole Phillips. And his his uh, he had a very distinctive style, and it was called the Fadeaway Girls. And uh, if you're out there, anybody who's listening to this or watching this, I should say, look him up. Google Coles Phillips or Fadeaway Girls. And he did this exact same kind of design thing. And he used it over and over on many uh, magazine covers from the earlier part of that century. And um, it was the same, he'd have women and they'd be in dresses and they'd have like, you know, uh, sometimes they'd have like elaborate sort of uh, 
uh, patterns and stuff, but the color would blend into the background or blend into part of the part of the rest of the cover. Some and sometimes there's one where there's a girl like kneeling in front of a picket fence, and you know you can only see the shape of her like legs uh, against the picket fence because it blots out the picket fence. You know, it's a white picket fence, but it melds with the background. And he did I don't know how many of these things, dozens probably. And it was his you know it was his uh, you know it was his uh, stock and trade. It was his um, signature, uh, uh, you know, illustration the same way Leindecker, you know, did, did stuff with all those hatchy blobs of color in the, in the different areas of the, you know, of his paintings that look, this is JC, not his brother, uh, you know, but he would do that. And, and I, and I use the, uh, I use that approach, that, that technique on a number of other color covers uh, over the years. I did a Spider-Man where he's inside, um, it was spectacular Spider-Man. He's in a planetarium. And so it's black and the whole interior is spattered with stars. And they also go across all the black areas of his costume. So, you know, little dots of stars. And mm-hmm. the only thing, again, defining his figure is, you know, where, um, you know, where the red parts of his costume are. And then I've also got the owls flying in there and for, and, and also, I don't remember the story at all, but also Doc Ock, uh, his, his uh, tentacles are coming in from the open doorway too. So there's a lot going on there. But again, the main thing is that Spider-Man blends into the background. I did one also in <clears throat> spectacular where um, he's against a series of um, totally illogical girders that are solid black and some go behind him. And so if it's behind him, if his chest is in the foreground, they disappear behind his chest, but some mm-hmm. of them are in front of him and they like say, you know, run over, you know, his gloves or his boots. And so there's these abstract uh, girders, solid black, his costume, solid black. And again, you know, I, the, I have uh, Doc Ock's tentacles coming in from off panel. Uh, and those are I did a red line, which is a thing you could do. So there's no holding line in the printed uh, final copy. Red lines uh, had been used in newspaper strips too. What you do is, I know uh, Hal Foster used to use them sometimes on the cloud areas. You would outline the red, you'd outline certain stuff with the red, a red line, red ink. And on the black plate, when you're printing it, the red shows up as black. But then uh, the engravers, they would look at the original. And if there's a note, you know, remove red lines, they could go into the actual printing plate. You know, in the old days, they were made out of steel or metal, some kind. And uh, they could route them out. They just, you know, they just scrape out those particular lines. So where the coloring stopped, you know, originally they had seen a black line there. And now that black line was removed. And so it was held, you know, just by the color. And so uh, I did that, uh, you know, on, on some of these covers as well, that, that one with the girders I mentioned in particular. And I did another one where the Spider-Man in his black costume is lowering himself from the ceiling and, you know, coming out of the darkness, which is solid black. And then there's a, you know, there's a doorway, it's a downshot and there's a doorway and the uh, lizard is stepping into the room and, you know, casting a shadow and he's framed by the, you know, I think a yellow light or a white light in the mm-hmm. doorway and Spider-Man is all black and, you know, with a little bit of white as the, you know, as the black costume uh, was designed. And that also I thought was a very effective uh, cover. And 
<clears throat> John Byrne did some covers uh, like that. I don't know if he's inspired by mine or he, if he also knew Coles Phillips, but he did, uh, you know, some Spider-Mans where I think he was framed against the, uh, a bunch of abstract buildings with just at night with just the lights in the windows uh, defining the shapes of the building and, right. and the Spider-Man figure out and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it became a thing. Well, it is an amazing cover uh, that you Thanks. did for 260. Um, and we, you know, we're doing right now um, a little, a little fun thing with March Madness, tying it into a bracket, you know, uh, for college basketball, right? Yeah, yeah. Where there's those brackets. We're, we're doing the same thing with favorite Captain America covers. Oh. Uh, so we're, we're doing that. Uh, and one of the ones that's being nominated is this cover, uh, cover two, 260, because it is a, a fun cover and you, and you described it wonderfully. Oh. So real quick, uh, you know, around this time that you were, were doing um, uh, some, some Captain America work, you, you, you were along you did a long run as penciler for the Avengers uh, yeah. with, with writer Roger Stern. I think it was about two years. Yeah. I and mean, it was a nice run. Yeah. Uh, of course you certainly drew a lot of cap in them Yeah, uh, in the mid eighties. You got to revisit cap when you penciled the, the sequel to secret Wars, which was written by Jim shooter. That uh, yep. was nine issues and you were the penciler yep. um, and it sold really well for Marvel. Yeah. Uh, but there was some, feedback from fans and critics um not happy about it and so what do you remember about that at that time because it was it do you think the feedback was about the story do you think it was there was resistance because it was all these tie-ins and it was the first time you had to, to Marvel publish a story where the reader would have to purchase multiple titles in order to read the entire story well, what about what about the first secret war series that that had tie-ins too didn't it Yes, but not in this way. It, it, it was more of a, a tie-in, but it was a supplemental stories, whereas this one oh, was see. almost like the story continued. In these yeah, so other- this, was, this was integral to following the story in the second. Right. Well, uh, clearly, that's what we intended. You know, right. It was, yeah, you know, don't pick and choose. Buy everything we publish and buy <laughs> it now. You know, so, uh, you know, it was a strictly a commercial uh commercial thought and and uh i can understand why some people might have been offended or pissed off by that uh but at the same time you know the our job as a publishing company is to sell as many of our product as we can and so i thought it was a a legitimate tactic um you know we weren't forcing anybody to buy them uh but you know if you really wanted to follow the entire story you sort of had to Um, but clearly, uh, it was a strategy that was successful because from then on, I think both companies did multi, you know, crossovers every year. They, you know, they get together and have editorial meetings. What are we going to do this year for a super crossover where everybody has to buy every issue of all our comics? So, you know, for better or for worse, uh, that was the way things were going. Um, you know, and and it, I, it did sell well. I wonder if it wouldn't have sold better if they had a better artist on it. Uh, but, you know, uh, what happened actually, uh, originally Sal Buscema was going to draw the series. Mm-hmm. And I love Sal's work. He's real, you know, he's a real solid pro. Good, you know, good action, good storytelling. It's, you know, um, I think uh, 
I think he's held in very high regard. I think, you know, the only real drawback to Sal's stuff is that he had the misfortune, I'm doing quote marks again, of being John Buscema's brother. And John, you know, was a super artist. I mean, just great. He was fast. He was great. He drew like a son of a gun. And Sal will tell you the same thing. He's, oh, I couldn't hold a candle to John's stuff. You know, you know but, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, absolutely professional and, um, and, and very, you know, very good style. And so he drew the entire first issue. And I don't remember the Genesis, but I was talking to Jim Shooter at a Christmas party, which I think was at the Illustrators Club. No, the Players Club, which is a place where actors, when they were in New York, if they were, I don't know if they had their acting cards, SAG or, or whatever the Broadway equivalent is, um, you know, could, could come there and, and rent a room for however long they needed to stay. So, uh, so I was talking to Jim and I, I got along great with Jim. Not, you know, I'm not saying everybody did, but I certainly did. And Jim, uh, I don't remember. He said, you know, I asked Sal to make a few changes in this issue. And he said, you know, this is ridiculous. I never have to change my stuff. I don't know if he quit. I don't know if Jim fired him. Um, you know, maybe Jim fired him if he refused to make the changes. Maybe Sal said, I don't need these hassles. I can draw, you know, my regular five books a month and not be bothered, you know, whatever he was doing. Um, and I, I don't think I knew that, but I told, I had said to Jim, I said, you and I ought to do a job together sometime. And he said, yeah, I'd like that. He says, Hey, you know, wait a minute. I've got this situation with Sal where he doesn't want to continue on, on uh, secret wars Two would you want to draw that? And, you know, I, I said, you know, now I said, now I put my foot in it because, you know, uh, this is going to be a very high profile job and I do want to work with Jim. I'd, I'd like to see how that goes. Um, but, you know, I, and I thought about it, I said, you know what, besides the experience of it, you know, this is going to be a high profile job. So it's good and bad. And it'll probably sell a lot. And that means at the time they were, they'd started paying the royalties or incentives, as I think Marvel called it. And I said, yeah, sure, I, I'd be up for it. So he said, all right, then you know what? He says, it's not fair to you for Sal to get the royalties on the first issue, which will be the best selling issue. So he says, so you can redraw the entire issue and you'll get the royalties. And, you know, Sal will be paid, you know, his page rate. Um, but, you know, if you're going to do the series, then then you should, you know, get the the royalties for every issue. And I thought that was very fair minded of him. And um, I never actually talked to Sal about it. I'd like to sometime anyway, just to see what his feelings were on the whole situation. He was probably <laughs> felt he was well, you know, well shed of it. But, uh, you know, whatever. I jumped in with both feet. But by this time, of course, we used up any lead time that we might have had because Sal had already drawn the first issue. He should have been starting the second issue. We got pushed back a month. So, you know, I was starting from scratch on the first issue. So I had to do uh, breakdowns, uh, which are, it's like a coloring book version of a comic book. You know, you do all the basic drawing, all the storytelling, but without any, uh, you know, fine details, crosshatching, feathering, or spotting of blacks. You might throw in an X here and there to indicate a black area, but mm -hmm. basically that falls to the inker to, to, you know, 
complete that part of the process. Uh, and it was a very effective um, uh, approach for Marvel, especially in those days when they were desperately trying to get all the books on time. And um, so you could have like, you know, a guy like Sal or John Buscema who could do breakdowns. They could, they would do four or five pages a day. And these were pages of, you know, they were slightly looser pencils, but any competent inker could take them and turn them into a finished page. And the penciler would get, I think the, at the time it was 25 bucks a page less. And the inker would get that 25 bucks a page more for doing the finishes. So, um, so I did breakdowns uh, of that. And then they got uh, Steve Lealoha, who's a wonderful inker and artist. And he did the finishes. Um, but we were under the gun from the very start. We were right up against the deadline every minute of the, of the whole nine issue series. And, um, you know, I think we did okay, considering the time constraints. Uh, but yet, yeah, certainly, you know, what I would have liked to have had more time to, to do more, uh, more polished pencils. And uh, I'm sure Steve would have liked to have had more time to, uh, you know, polish up my, uh, my pencils with his inks. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I know there were some disgruntled fans out there and, you know, I'm sorry for that, but, uh, you know, I, I thought the storyline was interesting. I think Jim writes a good solid story. And, uh, I think he did that. Uh, and he was, you know, he was very gracious about, you know, the storytelling. He says, look, you know, you, you did what I, what I needed you to do. You told the story clearly and, and all that stuff. And, you know, it's not an easy job, uh, you know, drawing all those characters and all those issues, you know, and having, trying to squeeze them into panels and <laughs> it was a tough one and it did, it did pay very well. The royalties were very good, but I don't have a penny of that stuff now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you know, you, you, I think you're a little too hard on yourself. It is difficult to do a, a multi-character series. Plus it's a difficult act to follow Mike Zach too. So I, yeah, Zach's a know. terrific artist and, you know, uh, <laughs> And, and I'll bet he wishes he had at least one of those pages back. And did you hear about that pa- Spider-Man page from, uh, yeah. from Secret yeah. Wars 1 that sold for three over $3.5 million? Yeah, the, well, it was the first appearance of the symbiote. So I, I think don't it, care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, no, you're right. It was a ridiculous amount. Yeah. I think that was the reason it went so high. Was well, yes, it was that's that. clearly, yeah. you know, there are people who said that's a historic Right. Of historic importance in the comics industry. And and ironically, um, I Mike did not do the I don't think the panel uh, where that appears. I think you know, part of the page, uh, he said, was redrawn by somebody on staff, possibly Ramita and inked by Jack Abel, who was also you know around the bullpen at the time, uh, because there, there was some story element that was, you know, that that Jim wanted changed or something. Who who wrote that original series? Uh, that would be Jim. It was Jim. Okay. Yeah, Jim Shooter. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, I heard that, uh, uh, that there was something in the storytelling that he, you know, wanted clarified or done in a different way. And so apparently half of that page or more is, is not drawn by Zach and uh, Beatty. So ironic. <laughs> It's ironic. So uh, back to your work on Cap. Uh, sure, try and um, get back to that. I dare you. <laughs> so you, you join you join the uh, uh, the series, I think, in '88 as a uh, as a regular anchor. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and at this time, you've you've already been writing and penciling uh, West Coast Avengers for some time, and you're continuing with that work. 
plus uh, your interest. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, writing the West Coast Avengers. Steve Englehart was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I so, wrote one. I wrote one issue. Yeah. And it was only. I was trying to. My goal on that book was to try to do more issues consecutively, consecutively than Kirby had done on the Fantastic Four, um, which you know would have been nice. But uh, <laughs> it's one of the few ways I can compare myself to Kirby. I I, ran, I did more issues of a book than he did. Right. But there's right. probably other artists in the in the industry. In the mix. Can, in the mix. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, Mike Sikowski on the Justice League or who knows what else. But, yeah. you know, I love Kirby stuff and I, I thought it'd be fun to try to. But, you know, uh, at one point, uh, Engelhart decided he was going to take a vacation. How dare he? And um, and so they said, oh, well, you know, that's that's fine. We'll get a we'll get a fill in issue done. Everybody can have a breather. I said, no, no, I'm trying to do this uninterrupted run, you know. I said, how about if I write a story? And I did one issue and it was okay. It was, uh, it was uh, basically, there was an alien. Oh, it was, the, you know, there's a story about the, the five blind wise men and the elephant. I think huh. it's a Chinese. Yeah, uh, Chinese proverb, right? Yeah. Or something. Yeah. yeah. And they said, they said, what is this elephant we've been hearing about? You know, and they brought these five guys into the room and each one put their hands because they're blind on the elephant to see what it was like. And, um, you know, one thought the elephant was like a snake because, uh, the, you know, uh, he, he felt its tail. And one thought it was like the, you know, the, the trunk of a tree because he felt its leg. And one thought it was like a spear because he felt the tusk. And one felt the, you know, the trunk. And it was like, a, it was like the, uh, the vines on the trees. I don't know. They, anyway, they all came up with a different version of what an elephant looked like. And so I did some kind of an alien who... Uh, they were going to invade Earth or something. And he said, you know, but, you know, the danger is the, these we hear of these Avengers who protect the Earth. So, you know, with our technology, we're going to make a one of our warriors who has the characteristics of all of the Avengers. And so he was the composite Avenger, I think I called it. And, you know, and it was a good visual, you know, on the cover. It was a guy who was part Tigra and part, uh, you know, Cap and part. I don't even remember who all the, you know, the different characters, Hawkeye and, and, and Mockingbird, you know, and, uh, but they still managed to, you know, beat him, of course, right. and stave off the thing. So that was my one issue writing of, uh, of West Coast Avenger. I wrote all so right. few things over my career that I can remember. <laughs> well, you're you also, I wrote. at this time, you're also inking Alpha Flight, X-Terminators, Bullwinkle and Rocky, The X-Factor. You were working on Marvel Comics Present. This was this is a lot of volume, right? Three, four books a month. How do you handle such a workload? I don't sleep. <laughs> um, you know what? People have asked me that, you know, and all, you know, uh, and also people who uh, knew, you know, people not in the industry, you know, said you work at home, which of course nowadays is very common with the COVID uh, problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, I go on staples, they say the solution for all your WFH, uh, you know, problems. And I, it took me a minute to figure out that meant work from home. But in those days, you know, only as weird freelancers did it. And uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not the most disciplined person. But I did find that if I took on more work than I could reasonably handle, then I didn't have time to sit around and how am I going to do this? When is the muse going to bite me in the ass? You know, no, I'd wake up and I go, Oh my God, I have to get to work. Cause I've got four jobs sitting here that I got to get to uh, working on. And, right. and, 
and I would knuckle down. I'd you know throw probably a, a Coke in my in my mouth, Coca Cola. Let's clarify. Yeah. <laughs> and I get right and I get right to work, and I'd work all day. You know, I take a break for lunch, and I work all day, and then I'd have dinner with my family, and if you know maybe I'd watch a couple TV shows, and then I'd work all night. And uh, sometimes I would go many days on minimal sleep. I mean, I remember at some point, you know, heading towards the office with a portfolio full of stuff to deliver. And the subway, as it often was, was pretty full. And I was sort of standing up and I'd, I'd fall asleep on my feet. And I'd only like, I feel my knee, knees buckling, you know, and I go, oh, you know, and I wake <laughs> up. So, uh, yeah, I, I found that the most effective way to me, for me to get a lot done was to, to do more than I really could. And, and it wasn't just, you know, and yes, uh, in those days in particular, the more you did, the more you got paid. You know, it was piecework. You know, you did a page, you got paid for a page. You did three pages, get paid for three pages. Um, and, uh, you know, all my favorite artists, uh, generally speaking, there were exceptions, but, you know, Kirby and Ditko and Gil Kane and Carmine and, you know, you name it, you know, the artists I grew up loving, most of them uh, were pretty fast, you know, and you had to be to make a living in comics. And so uh, I don't think there's any shame in working fast. And also, and not, not you know, incidental, uh, I love doing the stuff. I love, I want, uh, from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to draw comics. Miraculously, I actually figured out a way, you know, to get into the industry because I lived out in Michigan. I didn't know anybody who drew comic books. I met Starlin. He also wanted to do comic books. I met Buckler, blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, as a kid growing up, I had no realistic expectation of doing that for a living. And I was in college. I was in, you know, Michigan, uh, LSNA, which is Literature, Science, and the Arts, which is a general curriculum. And, um, you know, I was stumbling through and uh, not, not a great student. And um, at some point, you know, I, my counselor said, well, you know, science is not your gig because I had gotten a D in, in I, I took a course in advanced biology. Why? Huh? So uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So um, <laughs> Steve McQueen once said, but uh, anyway, so midway through my sophomore year, I said, listen, it was time to declare a major. I said, I don't think I'm cut out for this normal life stuff. I'd like to pursue my dream and become a cartoonist. And so he said, well, so what does that entail? And I said, well, I got to learn how to draw better. He says, well, and I guess you, you could try to transfer to the art school. They had, you know, they had their own art school in the university. So I went over, uh, I called up the dean of the art school and I said, dean, I want to transfer to the art school. He says, well, have you got any samples of your work? I said, I do. And I went up and he had an interview with him and we're chatting and I'm showing him my samples, which are, you know, uh, mostly comic book type things, you know, panel pages and so on. So on. some, I, you know, uh, I remember I had a drawing of some nude women around a fountain, you know, which I thought was more artsy, mm -hmm. but still drawn like a comic book, you know, artist. And he looked at the stuff and he chuckled and he says, you know, I, well, you've definitely got something going on here. He says, but uh, I had gotten a D in French that previous semester. 
He says, you know, you got a D in French. I said, I'm aware. He says, uh, you know, there's a language requirement in, in, you know, lit school, but there's no language requirement in the art school. I said, that's great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he said, no, Wait no, <laughs> he says, it's not great. He says, because we can't let you transfer to the art school with a failing grade in French. And I said, why not? If I don't have to take a language in art school. And he said, um, well, I know it doesn't make sense, <laughs> you know, he said, but, uh, you know, if we let you do that, then everybody's going to transfer into the art school to avoid the, French, the language requirement. And I looked at him <clears throat> and I said that, I said, that can't be true. I said, how many people are going to have, you know, be able to show you stuff that qualifies to get into art school? drawings, paintings, whatever, or even want to get into the art school, are they going to you know, go to that kind of an extreme just to avoid the language? He says, you're right. <laughs> he says, you're, you're absolutely right. I said, this is the biggest catch 22. I said, boy, that, that, that book was written just to, you know, to set an example of this. He said, you're right. But however, those are the rules. We can't let you transfer with a failing grade in French. So I took that semester of French over and I also had to boost up some of my other grades. Uh, <laughs> I, took, I took one class in uh, mechanical drawing, <clears throat> figuring it was sort of drawing related, but it isn't. You know, it's really, you know, <laughs> it's, you know it, it's like ruling lines and, and so on. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, uh, and it was a, I believe it was a self-grading class. You know, it was the 60s, so. Or yeah, sixties or seventies, and and so we were all hippies, and um, so by the end of the semester, the the teacher said, "Well, what do you think you deserve in the class?" And I said, "Or what are you giving yourself?" And I said, "I'm going to give myself an A." And he <laughs> said, "And he said, really? Because my mechanical drawing was was not spectacular." I I said, "Yeah." He says, "You you think you deserve an A?" I said. No, I probably deserve a B, but I'm trying to transfer into the art school and I need to get my grades up. And since you kindly offered to let me grade myself, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take the A. And then he made some comment like, well, like that I would rot in hell for being honest. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he didn't say that literally, but he said, oh, wherever you end up, uh, you, you'll, end, you'll get what you deserve. Some, something to those you know, it, it was a thinly disguised uh, in, implication that I was going to hell for, for giving myself one grade point higher. So anyway, but I managed to get a C in French the, the second time around. And my French teacher, by the way, was very sweet about it. And she says, you know, you have a great accent, but usually people who have a good accent, uh, you know, they do better in the class. I said, I'm not good at memorizing. Sorry, you know, I just mm. can't I never got good with it. Never got conversational. But uh, sacre bleu, what could I do? Oh, so I got a C in that. I got an A in that. I got a. I think I got an A or a B in one of my English classes. And anyway, I boosted my grades up enough so that they could, you know, uh, without guilt, you know, let me transfer to the art school. And then after that, I got all A's and B's. In fact, I, I ended up making the dean's list near the end of my uh, college career. Oh, so, that's and, excellent. And, yeah. So when you were inking Kieran Dwyer yeah. on Captain America, yeah. um, 
you know, he was a new penciler at the time. You know, I think he had only penciled four previous comics total. I unpacked unpacked the crate he came in. Yeah, he was fresh. That's how new he was. Yeah. Yeah. What what was it like working with a new penciler? And uh, what kind of growth did you see in in the 15 issues that you were uh, together with him? Yeah. uh, Listen, I thought Kieran uh, hit the ground running. I thought he was very solid, uh, very good draftsman from the get go. Um, I liked his work. It was tight. It was easy to ink. I enjoyed it. Uh, but he certainly improved over the course of, you know, that time, you know, 15 issues would have been, uh, more than a year and, uh, he got better and better. And, um, you know, his, he was a comic fan. Uh, you know, his, uh, his mother had been divorced and ended up marrying John Byrne. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I think, I don't know how that went. I've heard that maybe, you know, he he probably was a fan of Burns' work. And I think maybe then having him as a stepfather might've been less fun. I don't, I don't really know. I know none of the details, but I think I've heard stuff to that effect. So if I'm wrong, John, forgive me. Kieran, forgive me. Uh, it's all hearsay. And, you know, I say what I hear. So, you know, but I don't know if they got along great or not. But the bottom line is that he was, you know, a very, uh, a very good, solid artist and storyteller. Um, you know, my one, you know, my one kick, which is my kick with everybody is, I, I thought his stuff was well drawn. Uh, but it wasn't the most dynamic stuff in the world. Um, but, you know, I like dynamics, I like stuff to be action packed. Hence the fact, you know, that I'm, I'm, you know, Kirby is my, my all time favorite. I mean, mm-hmm. you just, and, you know, you can't compare anybody to Kirby and it, it t- tends to come off fairly mild, <laughs> you know, sure, because Kirby's just the, the king of, of the action stuff. But, you know, his uh, drawing improved over the course of it. Um, you know, I don't was I was I the first guy who inked him? I thought they had. Uh, well, uh, he had done Filipino. two cap issues before you came on board. Yeah, I thought I thought Kieran did a, a great stuff. And I think Grunewald was writing uh, some yeah. of the stuff. Including that uh, that um, serpent society or whatever they were, you know, the, mm-hmm. all the characters who were named after snakes of a, of any kind. And uh, well, know, there was they, a there were two issues in 1989 where you filled in as a penciler for Kieran. Yes, uh, it was 356, 357, and it was a two part story where Cap was turned into a teenager. And well, I he, think I did half of one issue. I did like right. the, the latter half of one issue that led into the full issue story that I did. Yeah. 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 And and I got to tell you, so Cap was turned into a teenager because he wanted to infiltrate this teen runaway cult run by Mother Night. Right. And there's this one panel that you drew that was shocking, Uh especially to a teenage Rick. Okay. Yeah. There was a character, (laughs) uh, Hoodwink. Did I turn Um, you into a teenage Rick? Is that what happened? (laughs) So Hoodwink seemingly snaps a young girl's neck and just right. like snap and now it's revealed to the next issue it was a hypnotic spell on cap right. i think she was killed right but when you first got that script for 356 did you know it was not real or did you really think you were drawing a young girl's very visual death i have no idea i have no recollection i my guess is uh who wrote it sterno uh no grunwald we're still grunwald okay my guess is that he just wrote it as he snaps her neck and you know i'm 
if, uh, if nothing else, I'm a good, clear storyteller. So I, I think I remember standing behind her and just going, Snick, you know, which yeah. they do in the movies all the time now. I, I don't imagine it's that. Can it be that easy to actually snap a person in that? Anyway, uh, and then, you know, it was revealed, like you said, the next issue, she was not, in fact, dead, but had been. Um, it would have been a shame, too, because Cap, you know, he went in to, to you know, to uh, infiltrate this out, this group, this cult. And, you know, then he befriended this girl and got her killed. But no, it turned out she was OK, which is, you know, sounds like. Uh, it sounds like maybe. <laughs> It was. It would have satisfied the comics code, although maybe they wouldn't have liked the graphic way I showed it. But you know, it's not like her he tore her neck off, and the, you know, or, or blood was spurting her, and it just like, you know, head head went to a weird angle, and then she was gone. So yeah, I don't. I don't recall really, honestly, after all this time, how it was originally plotted. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if you know Mark just had her. Okay, you know, he kills the girl, and then the next issue, oh, she's back. You know. So why not? You know, nobody's ever really dead in comics. That's right. That's true. That's right. Right. Hey, Al, we've got a, uh, we actually do have a couple questions from some of our listeners. So uh, Joshua Van Dyne asks, of all the things that you worked on, whether as a writer, editor, editor, what's that? Van Dyne? Janet Van Dyne? (laughs) I don't know, but we're going to have to ask him for sure. Yeah. Now we have a question for him. This question doesn't have a sting to it. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, very nicely played. Oh, so of all the things you've worked on, is there one job that you found the most fun? No. All right. No, I like when I said earlier, I, you know, I love doing the work. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, one of the, you know, Marvel for many, many years, uh, they kept me very busy. I made a nice living. Uh, I, and I said, listen, you guys have been uh, very, very good to me. Uh, and if you ever need help on jobs, um, you know, I'm always happy to pitch in. And I did, you know, I, uh, whenever, I mean, Marvel was always up against it. And very often, uh, if they had like two or three or five pages, they needed help inking or even penciling, but mostly as an inker, I would come in and, and fill in at the last minute, you know, stuff that Joe Rubenstein did a lot of, um, you know, there, uh, uh, you know, a number of guys, uh, you know, would, would, you know, got reputations for being reliable. And uh, if they got into a bind, if, you know, if a penciler was still churning out his pencils and if the anchor had the first 10 pages and was still working on him and another three pages of pencils came in, they said, you know, we can't wait for the anchor to finish what he's got now, find somebody else to do these three pages. Um, And so I would, you know, gladly pitch in. Um, And also I had a, an extra, secret advantage over a lot of these guys uh, besides what was that besides the ability to go without sleep for long periods of time i can't do it now god knows but um i live on long island john and Ramita, virginia live on long island john and virginia used to work at the marvel offices and they drove in every day okay if i got a package at 10 o'clock in the morning from FedEx, which was the earliest you you could get a delivery in those days. And it was an emergency situation. I could literally work all day, grab a bite to eat, and then work all night till about six in the morning. And then whatever I had done, I could jump in my car and I put the pages in an envelope. I drive over to the Ramitas. It was about a hmm, 20 minute drive, maybe. And I would put the envelope in their back uh, storm door. 
And then on the way out of the house to the garage to get their car, they'd say, ah, that Milgram was here again. And they would take the pages in. And so miraculously, you know, they could get, you know, depending on how badly I was, I was rushing to get stuff done, two or three, maybe even four pages done. Because I had essentially two full working days. You know, I could work from 10 in the morning till eight at night. And then I could work from 11 in, you know, in the evening till six or seven in the morning. I don't remember exactly the time. I could get like the equivalent of two full work days in. And inking two pages in a day in those days was not beyond my uh, capabilities. So, um, you know, the pages would show up bright and early, you know, in the morning, you know, like, like two days, at, you know, if they shipped them on a Wednesday, I'd get them on a Thursday, Friday morning, they'd be in the Romita's uh, back door and they'd and be in the office first thing in the morning. So that gave me a huge advantage because if I'd send them, you know, if I tried to send them FedEx, I wouldn't have gotten as much work done. And they wouldn't arrive until, you know, I, you know, if I got them on a Wednesday, worked all day uh, Thursday, I'd only get maybe a page or two done at the most. And then, you know, they'd get them, you know, then I, then even if I, if I shipped them that same day, they'd get them Friday. But if I couldn't get all the pages done, I wouldn't be able to ship until Friday, then they'd get them on Monday. So um, I had my own private courier service, nice. which Virginia yelled at me about. You save postage I, and gas. You know that was not my goal. That, she actually <laughs> said that. She said, you know, Aaron, you can send the stuff FedEx. Marvel will pay for it. And I said, Virginia, I know. I send tons of stuff FedEx. But if they've got an emergency, and she was the production manager. So I felt like I was kind of helping her out. You know, I was doing her a favor by working like a dog and getting things these things done and then driving to her house to, you know, deliver them. You know, they didn't have to go... And she, you know, but she, for some reason, felt like I was, I don't know, taking advantage of her or something. And it did. It saved Marvel money, too. Sure. Uh, it didn't save me any money. And I so, told her that. I said, Virginia doesn't save me money. Marvel's saving the money. And you're getting the pages that they so desperately need, you know. Right. Uh, and I, and I, one time I asked John, I said, John, uh, you know, Virginia told me she's, you know, she's upset that I keep dropping pages at your house. And he said, I don't know why we're going in anyway. It doesn't, it's nothing to us to just carry an envelope with it. I said, okay, good. So you really, it doesn't bother you. He said, no, I'll keep doing it. You know, so mm -hmm. I said, okay, great. Thanks. You know, right. so I ignored, I ignored her at my own peril and I listened to John. <laughs> well, we've got a, we got a second question from Ralph Warner who, sure. uh, who knows that you have worked on uh, well over a thousand covers in your career. I don't Place, know that. For a placing fact. you, I think, a number seven on the all-time list. But are there any that stand out as like your favorites? Well, yeah. As opposed to my previous answer, no. Uh, first of all, how, did he actually go through and count? No, uh, so there's a, a website. Um, yeah. And it's called um, Mike's Amazing World. So you can go I'm to Mike's, yeah, Mike's Amazing World.com. It's a great reference. Okay. Any favorites? Oh, yes. Sorry, I got, I got sidetracked. Yeah, I have a number of covers that I, I, I thought, first of all, the covers were probably the best thing I did. I thought, you know, I was a competent storyteller, not a great artist, penciler type, but, but you know, storytelling clear uh and you know i was lucky to be blessed with some very good solid uh, old pro inkers on my stuff including joe sinnott and jim mooney and guys like that who uh made the stuff you know jack abel turned my 
chicken scratchings into very polished professional looking stuff. Um, but covers, you know, I could, I could raise my game a little bit and, uh, and do a better job on a single image. And uh, the Captain America cover I thought was one of my best. Um, I, uh, I had a run on Peter Parker where I did not every cover in, in a, in a consecutive run. I had, there were individual issues that other people did, including Ed Hannigan. And I think Greg LaRoque did a couple here and there. And, um, but you know, that, that, that cover I mentioned where Spider-Man's in the, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the uh, uh, planetarium was, I thought a very good cover. And then once I was, you know, writing and drawing the the strip. I had a n- number of covers that I thought were among my best. Um, you know, the one where this is a this is a common meme, but where Spider Man's holding uh, the black cat. You know, it's a bit of a down shot, and she's bleeding on the floor and stuff like that. And he's in a spotlight. I thought that was a strong cover. I thought that uh, the one with the girders that I mentioned, and the one with the the uh, the um, uh, lizard. I did a, a run where I like this one where like a Spider-Man and uh, the black cat are, it was, a, they're fighting the blob. I thought that was a striking cover. Um, I had a couple Hulk covers where he was first fighting the West and East coast Avengers. And then the next cover, they were carrying him as if they'd killed him. You know, all the heroes were like, you know, lined up on each side of his body, carrying him in a, funeral procession or something i thought that was good yeah um i uh you know i did some i did a number on peter parker again with cloak and dagger and um silvermane was that that was the guy who was part robot the criminal guy they turned into a part sure yeah yeah mm-hmm. several of those i did I, I did one as a triptych with spider-man uh in the middle i think and cloak and dagger on either side of them um and i did some other ones where he and the black cat are in it and they're holding up, uh, I think maybe dagger and, and, you know, it just, the composition was a little bit, you know, off kilter, which made it, you know, visually interesting. That whole run, uh, number 100 on, on Peter Parker, I thought was a very strong cover where they're, you know, it's a kind of a Will Eisner bit where Spider-Man and the black cat and the black costume uh, and uh, did I say Kingpin uh, are all, you know, are all, you know, in and around and about the, the number 100, uh, you know, playing it as part of the, uh, as part of the background. Uh, you know, I did a whole bunch. I liked my run on uh, Kitty Pride and Wolverine, the miniseries. Oh, yeah, that was really good. Thanks. I, I made one, one mistake that I kick myself to this day. Um, I came up with the idea of dividing each cover just, just so thematically they mm-hmm. had, you know, uh, something going on. So the first cover is Kitty and she's walking from her, you know, her home in the suburbs in the States and then walking across this dividing line into Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mistake was not having a big looming figure of Wolverine. And the reason I did that was guilt because he literally did not appear until the last panel of the issue. Um, but that, you know, <laughs> but the Wolverine was the big selling point of that series. You know, he, yes, he, was, was. The hot, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was the hot character. 
And, and I only got to do it because I, I whined and complained. I said, when am I going to get to do an X-Men related thing? And, you know, usually they use better artists than me. But, you know, I, uh, you know, Chris Claremont and Wheezy, who was the editor on it, uh, took pity on me. And so Wheezy said, hey, Chris, can you write a, can you write a miniseries for Milgram McGraw? And he said, sure, to his credit. And, and I don't know how he feels about it now, but at the time he said, oh, this is a favorite story I, that I ever wrote. He was very happy with it. And so I feel as if, you know, I don't know whether that was in, because of my artwork or in spite of my artwork or if the artwork didn't have any say in the matter at all. But, uh, you know, one thing I did, which I rarely did in those days, was I penciled and inked the whole uh, series. And again, I was doing so much work at the time, it was probably ill-advised. But uh, I had been developing an inking style that I thought was more uniquely my own for my own stuff. Uh, I didn't necessarily use it on other pencilers, but on me I did. And it, I think it worked on my covers. Um, and so I had each of those covers was divided down the middle by different elements. But, it, you know, it worked out the same way with, the, you know, with a little gutter down the middle. One, it was uh, somebody holding a staff, like a wooden staff. Right. One, it was uh, the bad guy, the, you know, Ogun or whatever his name was, uh, sl slicing his sword downward so the speed line made the dividing line. Um, one, it was the, you know, it was that demon mask that he wore, and that was split down the center with Kitty on one side and, and Wolverine on the other because, you know, he was, the, the, you know, the, the, the bad guy and Wolverine were fighting for Kitty's soul, so to speak. And so I came up with a way to do it. And I also, <laughs> this is a minor thing that, that only matters to me, but maybe, but I designed a number of covers over my career. Once they started doing the UPC boxes, you know, those ugly lines, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. universal pricing code. I found out uh, that you could eliminate them on the direct only copies if that area was either all black or all white. And so if you look at those covers, four of the six covers on that series have no UPC box mm -hmm. on, the, on the direct sales copies. And, you know, they're an eyesore. I mean, they were a necessary evil, but on the direct sales copies, because uh, they were pre-sold and there were no returns, uh, you didn't need them. So usually they, they just have a box with a Spider-Man head in it. Right. Or, you know, some other, you know, there were different incarnations of it. But I figured out ways to eliminate them on all those covers um, and also on a number of other covers, some Avengers covers I did, some of the Peter Parker covers I did. If you see the direct sales copies, sometimes there'll be a box with Spider-Man's head in it and behind it is an all black area of the cover, which means that they could have eliminated it if they just followed my, my border notes. Like, you know, mm -hmm. and I'd write, please remove UPC box from direct only copies. And, you know, either the editor or the engraver or the printer, somebody dropped the ball and didn't. And so it would be there anyway, which used to drive me nuts because I went to the extra little bit of effort to design these to get rid of them. And then they put them in there anyway. So that drove me crazy. But four of the six uh, Kitty Wolverine covers, um, you know, I managed to do it. Uh, and, all, and, and other covers that I liked uh, were... Uh, I did some Avenger covers that I was happy with, but I rarely inked those. Usually, I, you know, Joe Sinnott was doing the book. And so, you know, in, out of respect to him, I said, yeah, Joe, Joe getting inked the cover? Oh, that's fine with me. You know, uh, you can't ask for a better inker. Uh, oh, one of the uh, spectacular Spider-Man covers I did that I liked was uh, the one with 
the um, gladiator slashing through the logo. Now that's a that's also oh yeah with, that's with a the, great you camera. know Simonson did it with Beta Ray Bill smashing the Thor mm-hmm. logo. Other people have done it on other logos. It's not it's not it was not a new idea, but that may be the single best Spider Man figure I ever did in my life. I just I was you know I felt like the anatomy was working really well on it. I had gotten that 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 rough kind of approach to inking which borrowed some Ditko but had a different you know different look overall look to it but I mean, definitely I'd been taking a bath in Ditko looking at the way he accented stuff and he put little dashes along the edge of things for no apparent reason but it worked and I would do that that's one of my favorites um uh what else I I don't know I loved a lot of them I did a lot of them I I did a lot of covers over John Romita Jr and for a while there I was trying to come up with some different little uh technique on each one of them like one of them uh i did something with zipatone and one of them i I had one where there's a giant juggernaut head uh you know behind the spiders spidey's figure swinging in and i i took it and i did wash work you know diluted ink so to get gray tones and then we sent it out to uh you know to uh i don't know if it was a separate place or the engravers but they made what was called a VLOX. And what they would do is they had screens with different textures or looks to them, you know, um, almost like a Zipatone approach. But what they did was I had them shoot it with a, uh, a screen of concentric circles. So if you look at that cover, all the different shades of gray, you know, go from being wash work where they're actually gray to being uh, black line work but, you know, of varying degrees of thickness. So it was lighter or darker, depending on how thick the line was. And it was radiating out from the center of the, you know, the juggernaut's head. And, you know, so his whole head was was made up of these concentric circles. Uh, and I thought it was a very striking, uh, strong look to it and stuff like that. I did other, you know, I did some well, you you You've done others. a lot. I mean, you, and I mean, obviously with over a thousand covers, there's so many to choose from, but you named some really good ones there. That's for sure. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I tried. And I think I did a real good job on, you know, inking certain other people too on occasion. A couple of times I inked Howard Chaik and that, that was a challenge. And, uh, uh, cause Howard usually inks his own stuff, but I thought the results were pretty good. I did a, I did a scarecrow cover for one of the Marvel, you know, they had a reoccurring scarecrow character uh, at Marvel on one mm-hmm. of the books. Don't remember the title now. And I had, uh, one of, um, one of his science fiction characters, Cody something or other it was something it was Cody Starbuck Cody I don't remember but anyway it was a nice cover where the character is wearing a Flash Gordon kind of outfit and a cape with and he's holding he's got a mechanical falcon that he, on his arm and there's a pretty girl clinging to his you know foot you know like like the Conan painting that Frazetta did mm-hmm. uh, I, and I thought you know I thought I did an, a pretty good job interpreting that I know one guy uh, Sal uh, Amendola, who uh, was a very good artist and a, a real nice guy, and we got along great. And he did a scarecrow cover for DC, the Batman villain, and it was a big figure of the scarecrow looming over and towards Batman, um, who's I think running away from him or something. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, I remember I, I I don't remember who the editor was. It might have I don't know who was editing Batman at the time. Was it Julie Schwartz or something? Might have been. But I remember. I liked Sal and his drawing was really good. He did a character called Phoenix for, um, for Atlas, you know, the, uh, 
the uh, uh, Martin Goodman company, the you know that that they decided to try to compete with Marvel once once he'd sold the company. Anyway, um, so I like sales stuff, and it was well drawn, and I did a real try to do a real good job. And <laughs> this happened to me on occasion. He the next time I ran into him, he said, "Al, that cover you did such a great inking job on the cover," and it really sounded like he was surprised. <laughs> You know, <laughs> if not shocked. And I said, yeah, it was a real good cover, you know, Sal. And I, I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to do it justice. He said, oh, I'm so happy with it. I, you know, I wish I could have gotten you to ink a lot of my other stuff. And I said, well, thanks. That's flattering. You know, and I, uh, one of the main, one of the main things I got a kick out of was um, uh, surprising people. Because I, every anchor will say, they tailor their inks to whoever the pencil is, but almost nobody actually does that. You know, they think they do it in their mind's eye. They do it, but really not, not so much. You know, you get a guy like Joe Sinnott, he inks like Joe Sinnott. You get Terry Austin, beautiful stuff, a lot of detail, strong inking, looks like Terry Austin, you know, but I think my stuff, I call myself an inking chameleon. I would really try to alter my stuff to fit what I felt the pencil was trying to, trying to go for so, um, you know, that happened a lot, you know, and, and Shooter once made a comment. He says, who inked this? And I, you know, Al Milgram, this doesn't look like his stuff. And, you know, I said, Jim, what does my stuff look like? He says, well, I guess I don't know, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, the first time I inked a job by, um, by uh, uh, Larry Stroman, he was a new guy with a very offbeat style, not like any other comic book artist you've ever seen. I think, Chaikin met him he was doing street portraits or something by the library maybe and and anyway very and he said hey you should you should do some comic book work uh and they gave me a job of his to ink I, I was inking him on x factor of course and as I, I believe I started inking my first issue over him and then they said wait a minute we need a we are we got him to do a fill-in issue of, of Wolverine um can you you know are you available? Can you ink that? And I said, uh, well, I don't know. How soon am I getting the rest of this X fact? Oh, not for a while. He's got to do this. He's got to do Wolverine first. So I did the issue. And I thought I did a pretty good job. And, uh, and I, the next time I ran into Larry in the office, he goes, oh man, I was real happy with, you know, it's always, it's always a surprise to them. It's always, you know, a shock. I really like what you did on my stuff. I said, oh, I'm glad, Larry. I, you know, I was, I was hoping you would. He goes, no, no, but you got to understand, I, I didn't think it was going to look anything like this. I said, well, that's, you know, the way you penciled it. What did you think? He says, well, you know, I thought it was going to look like, you know, what you do over uh, uh, Ron Friends. I said, well, no, Ron, I love Ron's stuff, and I enjoy inking it a lot. It was nice. It was tight. And he only ever, he, he only, I thought his stuff was full pencils, and I used to fight with him periodically because he would only voucher it as breakdowns. So I got an extra 25 bucks for inking what was there. That was good, you know, but, um, you know, very, very, you know, classic marble stuff. Beautiful. Uh, I said, you don't draw anything like Ron friends. And he says, well, no, I know that, but I didn't know whether, you know, you'd be able to ink it accordingly. And I said, that's what I pride myself. Well, Al, I have to tell you, this has been a, a fun conversation. I want to tell you how much we've enjoyed uh, wrapping cap with you today, as well as all the other uh, stories behind the stories that you've been able to share. Too many. Um, 
And yeah. so I know you, you do a lot of shows, you go to a lot of conventions um, for those who want to get in touch with you in case they were interested in maybe a commission or something like that. What's, mm. what's the best way to get in touch with you? Okay. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, and also uh, anybody uh, who runs shows and might be interested in having me as a guest, you can contact me at the following email address. It's editorial the numeral four, editorial four, at AOL.com. I'm an old guy, so I still use AOL. <laughs> and, the other, and the other thing is, um, please mention in the subject line that you, if you're interested in a commission or if you're interested to have me at a show uh, or, you know, or mention that you saw me on the CAP, uh, you know, fans uh, podcast, just so I know it's not a, uh, it's not somebody trying to scam me or, or send me a, send me a bug or something like that. I don't, I don't need a computer virus, please. So um, of course, no, nobody out there hates me enough to send me one on purpose. No, no. <laughs> I, and, and and we'll also include your email address in the show notes. So anybody uh, they can just click on that and, and open up their email to send you uh, a request. Sure. That'd be great. Yeah. So again, Al, uh, thanks so much for, for your time. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show and, uh, we, we look forward to, to seeing what's next for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, me too. Uh, hopefully staying alive, but hey, uh, speaking uh, of which Al, happy birthday. I know it's coming up in about a week, right? It's coming up very shortly. Yeah. So I'll be 72 and, uh, uh pleasantly, pleasantly retired. I don't have, I don't have those <laughs> deadlines knocking my brains out anymore. Uh, you know, for a while there, I couldn't get used to the idea of not working full tilt boogie. And now I can't get used to the idea of working at all. So <laughs> when somebody sends me a commission, I kind of go, do I really want to do that? Nah, yeah, I, I really, I got to keep my hand in a little bit. So yeah. I do that. But uh, yeah, I kind of miss the old uh, hectic days, but uh, it's much more relaxing nowadays. So <laughs> well, after all these stories, I got to tell you, you've earned your retirement. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. All right. Thanks again, Al. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, Bob, that was a fun conversation uh, with Al and uh, appreciate him being on the show. Uh, learned a lot about, you know, uh, the work behind that goes into all of this. Um, he certainly, man, he, he could, uh, he could, he could hold a room for, for hours. He could, you know, the thing is, uh, I, I didn't expect the interview to go that long, Rick, but you could tell like. Man, he's been in a lot of different situations, a lot of places. He's had a lot of experience. And I think it's just awesome that like he is just like sharing it. Like we're sitting around a table having a cup of coffee and he's like an old friend. Yeah, yeah he's a he's a, a real nice guy. I, I highly recommend uh, if you if you have any interest in, in getting some some commissions again, maybe it's a recreation of one of his thousand covers uh, or, you know, any any of the, the, the books that he did. Um, you know, by all means, you should reach out to him. His email address is going to be in our, in our show notes. So, um, and then Bob coming back next episode, we are going to get into uh, the road to the captain part two. So this was something we kicked off uh, in episode 70. uh, And we're going to do an eight part series where there's three issues per uh, episode. And it's the, starting with uh, issue 327 and making our way to issue 350. And this is the story of Steve Rogers relinquishing his role 
as Captain America, John Walker's story of picking up the shield and uh, their journeys. And so this next episode is going to be Road to the Captain Part 2, Captain America 330 through 332, which came out in 1987. And, and stick around for the end because we get through 332, which is a very heavy issue, which is the one where Steve struggles with giving up his identity. And then Bob and I have a great conversation afterwards uh, about what that meant to us. So come back for that next episode. All right, Bob, as always, it's been fun wrapping cap with you. As it has. Let's do it again. All right. He's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick Verbonis, and you've been listening to another episode of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast.